Welcome back to another episode of Lily High on Life. And this really is a very special episode because our guest today is the Honourable Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Sally Capp. Sally, welcome to Lily High on Life. Thank you, Lily. I feel pepped up just by the title <laughs> of the show. So it's lovely to be here. Well, you're one of those people that feels like she's always feeling good. So you're pretty high on life most of the time from what I can gather. Yeah, I am so lucky. I'm a high energy person and I'm a massive optimist. It's not just glass half full with me. It's glass, glass three quarters full. Um, uh, at least, and uh, there's a lot of positivity that comes from that. So it's, I've been lucky in that way. And this position you have as the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, tell me a bit about that and, and what you do and why you wanted to do it. Mm. Well, I am the Lord Mayor. I sometimes still have to pinch myself uh, because it's such a, an, an honour to have a role like this. Uh, It gives you a platform to be able to do so many interesting things and I hope, you know, to deliver a lot of good uh, in Melbourne and uh, so there's definitely that sense of honour and it's just been a gift uh, to be involved in, I feel like I'm uh, I'm in the back uh, office of Melbourne, if you like, I'm really seeing how cities uh, work and operate and it's not all pretty and a lot of it is hard work uh, but you're working towards uh, the betterment of this beautiful city and helping people in this city and it just fills me with joy. That's so wonderful and what was actually going through your mind when you were running for the position? Mm. Well the good news was I didn't really understand what was involved with the election <laughs> so I uh, went in uh, with quite a lot of naivety really highly motivated by and my husband and I uh, made this decision together as, as um, you do often it's great to have a team and uh, we are both passionate Melburnians and we really felt that uh, people were losing respect for the institution uh, of the city of Melbourne and, and the role of Lord Mayor. And so we different... became incensed is by it that. Very... Is it very different from what you thought it was going to be? Oh. And I love the motivation because that passion and wanting to change things is mm. so important. Mm. It's a little bit different in that, uh, you know, you often think of local government, I've never been involved in local government before, before, as roads, rates and rubbish, and we often sort of relegate it. It's the lowest level of government and it's just there to do some basic things. Uh, Since I've become involved, I realise the breadth of what local government, particularly a capital city local government, is involved in is enormous and it's about uh, services from maternal and childcare services all the way through to ageing, it's new businesses through to existing businesses, it's it's economic development through to big social issues like homelessness and the environment. Uh, It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I know that my to-do list will never actually get shorter Uh, (laughs) but as long as it's filled with things where we can really make an impact uh, and prioritise that way, I think we're going to be all right. And we're pre-recording this on a Saturday, so it really is a seven-day-a-week job. And it was very good of you to come uh, <laughs> on a Saturday. It's it's a seven-day-a-week job. That's the way I, uh, I operate. I'm lucky enough to take on the role at a time when kids are older and they're off doing their own thing. Uh, it means I've got so much time to devote to the role. Uh, We live in the city so that's a bonus and in some ways you never really check out. 
And you really are a very much seven-day-a-week person anyway. You have a very strong to-do, so you had to be an entrepreneur. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about this sense of, of, of getting things done and what it means and, and it being 24-7 and a pleasure. Mm. Well, uh, I'm a have-a-goer. Uh, and I am, a, I call myself a worker ant. You know, I, I do love to roll my sleeves up and get on with things. This is a, a big part of the way I was raised. You know, if you, if you want to see change, well, go and create the change. You know, you, you, this, this sense of, uh, of the ability and the freedom and the independence to take on, you know, some of these things. I think uh, my parents were both their own business people. Uh, we didn't feel constrained. You know, that has a lot of risks mm-hmm. uh, and they were happily took on those risks. There was a lot of hard work involved. We were all part of that. We were both latchkey kids, you know, during the week when mum and dad were running their businesses and then we were working in the businesses on the weekend, all those typical sorts of things. And that's really instilled a great, I think, great values and a great work e- ethic uh, to want to uh, tackle uh, a lot of things at the same time, have a lot of energy, know that commitment really requires a lot of uh, a lot of uh, that sense of, um, oh, what would I say, not just the energy, but uh, being willing to do the hard yeah. yards. And, and it's not always easy. But, of course, the things that aren't easy give you the best rewards. And you've always known and had a sense that you can do anything. I have. I've been so lucky from my parents... Uh, supporting all of us in in taking the risks and having a go. I mean, my father would have loved me to be a champion 100-metre runner. That was never going to happen, but I did have a go for a while. Uh, You know, mistakes that get made, well, that's fine. What did you learn? And pull up your socks and keep going. Uh, It's that lovely support. But also, when I was at school, I I, I, um, spent the year 7 to year 12 at a school called PLC, Presbyterian Ladies College, um, did have many other names for the acronym, uh, like public lavatory cleaners and things like that in the old days. But we had a wonderful headmistress. School, school, I know, so cruel. Uh, Wonderful headmistress, Joan Montgomery. And that era at the school, so many of the women have come through with a sense of purpose and that can-do attitude. Uh, But I think also what's been great is through our family, and it came from my grandparents as well, is that you can fail and still survive when we we're not it's it's not a fear of failure it's a respect of failure because my grandfather was a milliner here in Flinders Lane actually and almost overnight people stopped wearing hats particularly men and that was in the 60s JFK came in who was the first president to attend his inauguration without a wearing a hat Uh, and uh, my grandfather went bankrupt And so a lot of our family stories were about the good old days and then responding to and surviving and then ultimately thriving through very, very difficult times. Uh, So uh, there's a, there's, when you've gone through those experiences, when it's part of your ethos and your family life, I think there's a lot of courage uh, and support that comes with that in equal measure. So, so true, because the truth is so many people are afraid to try anything or do anything simply because they're afraid of failure. And we have to get rid of that notion because it's okay to fail. People don't know that. Exactly. And I was so lucky uh, in the the 2000s, early 2000s, I should say, um, 
I got to spend time in Israel doing business. Mm. And I remember a meeting with a venture capitalist there and I'd taken a slide deck that had all of the good things that I'd done. And I know you start, Lily, by saying, you know, we want to hear the bad things as well. And it's so true uh, because out of those, you know, the, the phoenix uh, yes. rises. Anyway, I sat down with my slide deck with all of the best things I'd ever achieved in my life. And he looked at me and he said, describe to me your worst three failures and what you learned. And I, I looked wow. at him, I was astounded. I, I wasn't prepared at all. I've had failures, there's no doubt, but I, I didn't have it ready in terms of uh, presenting and discussing. And he looked at me and he said, come back when you can talk to me about that. And he said, I don't invest in people unless they can describe failures to me because I need to know that they're resilient. Everybody has failures. It's about how you learn from those failures and how you use those learnings to propel yourself to a new level. And that's the sort of investment I like to make because whatever, however good it sounds, there will be moments where something doesn't work out the way you want it to. And I like to know that you've got the skills to cope with that. What did you come back with? Oh, some of the failures? Oh, gosh, there are so many. And sometimes when I'm introduced at speeches and, and events, I, I think I've got to change my resume so it just says here are the, the failures <laughs> rather than the good bits because it can seem a bit sort of intimidating and, and less approachable and accessible if you put up on these pedestals don't all the time. Under, yeah, and people don't understand and are embarrassed by their failures. Hmm. So that's why I'd love exactly. to, yeah. I'd love you to share so that. So look, they, they start from very early on. I, I think I've actually been quite good at learning from my mistakes from when I was a young lawyer. I was passed over many times for opportunities. I, I wasn't getting pay rises like others were. And welcome back to another episode of Lily Hutt. And I realized at that point, I am responsible for my own career. If I am not telling people in a way that suits you, you know, you yeah. don't have to walk around with a loud, loud hailer all the time, but if you can't express to people what you are looking for, what development you need, what support you need, what, what your ambitions are and your dreams are, then how can they help you? Yes. And it was such a good learning for me early on uh, to start to take more responsibility for my life rather than waiting and hoping others would identify and give me those opportunities. That's a huge thing. People are not mind readers. Exactly. And not everybody thinks the same way. Mm. So you really need to learn to communicate all kinds and of things. And I had to practice, you know, uh, as confident as I seem, uh, we all uh, have our vulnerabilities. And uh, so I started practicing and I'd, I still do this today. I, I spend a lot of time saying things out loud because the more time you say them out loud, even if it's to yourself in a mirror, the easier it is when you actually have to do it. And I started telling my colleagues and my bosses, I look, I really enjoyed that particular bit of work I'd like to do more or I've realised that I need skills in this area and I'd appreciate the opportunity or I'd like to do a secondment, whatever it is, I just started practising. And it's so interesting because when it came to being the Lord Mayor and the election, the biggest thing I had to do was to be able to stand up and say, I would like to be the Lord Mayor of Melbourne. And it was so intimidating, but because I'd had so much practice through my career of finding ways of telling people what you want. I looked back and I thought, wow, this has come together really nicely for me because to stand up in the public 
and mm. say that sort of thing uh, is really scary. And it was really <laughs> scary. It's the most stressful thing I've ever done the election. Uh, but I'm so glad I did it. But it was a big part of that journey of being able to tell people what you want and why. Excellent. That's, I, I'm, I was, I'm surprised by that and also delighted. And uh, thank you for sharing it. Now, you, you've, done, you've had a lot of firsts. You're the first Lord, female Lord Mayor. You were the first to hold this really uh, strong position in London, um, representing Victor Victoria as a yep. state. Do you, um, do you go after these things and say, oh, it needs a woman to do this, I want to be the first, or do you just... Is it just part of, I'd like to do that? Hmm. It's really the latter. And uh, it's, as we were talking earlier, I'm, I'm a have-a-goer. I've, I've never thought I shouldn't have a go. I'm happy to humiliate myself if I think it sounds interesting. I'm the sort of person who I'm very curious about what my personal boundaries are. I'm really happy to explore and experiment. And, you know, I don't like failing. It's never enjoyable, but I'm, I'm up for it if I can learn something. And... So the firsts have really come from that annoying person that I am where I'll constantly put my hand up for things. Uh, but it's also come a lot from personal passions for things as well. Uh, I was the first woman on the Collingwood Football Club board. It wasn't yes, that I was focused on being the woman. <laughs> I love the Collingwood Football Club, you know, and I... I'd been away from Melbourne for a while and I was desperate to get involved back in the club. It was a big part of growing up for me, was going to the football with family every weekend and I missed it. And, uh, and it turned out there was an opportunity to join the board. Did it ever occur to you that you couldn't because you were a woman? Well, it's interesting. I mean, this is another one of those, uh, those sort of sliding door moments because I had been a business person, a lawyer and then a business person in Perth. We'd been living there for about eight years and we were coming back to Melbourne. My husband and I, we had two children with us and we were doing different dinner parties to say goodbye to friends and colleagues there. And one of them was hosted by a senior uh, businessman and he asked me, what are you going to do when you get to Melbourne? And he meant for a job. And I said, look, I don't have a job sorted out yet, but I do know I'm walking into the Collingwood Football Club and I'm saying I'm here and I want to get involved. And at that point, it, it hadn't sort of crystallised in my mind what I might do for the club. But what happened next was amazing because this businessman looked at me with, with derision, really, and said, well, what would you do at a football club? <laughs> Really meaning, what would a woman do at a football club? <laughs> and it really created a reaction in me. And I said, well, I guess, you know, I could uh, wash the uniforms. Of course I could do that. But I believe I've got the skills to be able to add value at a board level. So I said, anywhere between there, those extremes, I'm up for it. But I said to him, I have done about 10 transactions with you. Uh, and I'd been in venture capital and, and done a number. And I said, don't you think I can add value at a board level? I can do P&Ls. I know how to grow balance sheets. I'm a lawyer by trade. And I went through. It was me verbalising what yes. I want uh, and what I thought. And he looked at me and he said, yeah. And I said, I don't know why I didn't think of that. But yes, I do. By unbelievable serendipity, that businessman happened to meet a gentleman named Eddie Maguire at the races gosh and ed said uh oh we're running a board process at the moment we're looking for a new board member and my colleague from perth 
said, oh my goodness. I love that. I know the most feral Collingwood supporter <laughs> and she's a great business person. And it was from that conversation that I learned that there was an opportunity, there was a board opening and I joined that process and the rest is history. Mm. But I just, I think life is the most wonderful uh, uh, collection of these doors or opportunities that open. And I am and have lucky enough to be the sort of person that just jumps into those opportunities when they do arise. It's not every opportunity and I don't get all of the ones I want, uh, but I just keep jumping and the stats prove that the more you try, the you know the luckier you get. I guess absolutely. And I'm a really great believer in if you believe you can do it, you will. Mm. And your articulation and saying it out loud um, just strengthens mm. what your belief and your resolve is, and mm. that you can do it. Mm. So I'm a big believer you can do anything with that, not just attitude, but belief in yourself, a faith that you can. And you will. And you know as well, uh, you've got to be the sort of person that's going to give everything a red hot go. Yeah. Uh, If you do walk into those situations, you've really got to give it your best shot. One, so you can get the most out of it, but also so you give yourself the opportunity to be as successful as possible. And that's certainly what I'm doing as Lord Mayor. What did you find? I'm giving it a red hot go. <laughs> well, you're doing a fabulous job from, from everything I can Thanks, see. Lily. So, um, and, you've got, and you seem to be having fun with it. Whenever I've seen you, you've, I mean, of course it's a serious job, but you seem to have fun with what you do in life, mm. which is a huge, huge and fabulous way of living life. Mm. Yes, and I am struck by a uh, Peanuts cartoon uh, where Charlie is sitting with Snoopy. And Charlie, you know how Charlie can be sometimes, and he says, well, you only live once, Snoopy. And And I think, yeah, that's very true. That's something we often say. But then Snoopy says, actually, you only die once, Charlie. You live every day. Love it. And to me, that is exactly what we're trying to do. Try and squeeze every single thing out of every day that I possibly can. Absolutely. You're listening to Lily, High on Life, with Sally Cap. And just time for a station ID, which... Um, I have queued, but it's, uh... You're listening to J-Air, Jewish Australian Internet Radio. J-Air broadcasts and to Caulfield and nearby suburbs on 87.8 FM, as well as streaming online. Absolutely. Now, you're very, you've, you've got a close family and you're very family-oriented... And yet you've, cho- you've made the choice to live overseas in a number of different places. You mm. mentioned Israel, but also Europe and London. Mm. What, what was it like to when you first went overseas and were separated by family? Mm. And- 
Well, I said earlier I really like to push my personal boundaries. I'm lucky I've got a husband that likes to do the same thing and the kids have really come on that journey with us. Uh, it's such a huge world out there and we love to live sort of trying to touch, you know, every, every boundary. Uh, I remember particularly when we moved to London because the kids were 10 and 11 and it's, it's you know, it's really a time in your childhood when you've established patterns and you've got your friendships and we, we have a very close family group. And for them, I just assumed that they would see it in the same adventurous way that Andrew and I did, my husband and I did. And we were so excited to arrive in London, but it didn't take us long to work out that the kids were deeply upset about the move. And it was a big learning for all of us uh, for me to try to get the boys to see it as an opportunity and adventure and fun. Uh, I could not convince them for a long time, uh, but for uh, Andrew and I to be in a situation where we thought it was all going to be roses, and actually, as the saying goes, you're only as happy as your saddest child. Mm. So it didn't matter what other fabulous things were happening, uh, the fact that our kids were having such a difficult time settling in was it really the, it really rattled us was it their first experiences with english children or just missing what they had back here yeah it was really missing and it to tell you, it well it was one of the reasons why we did it because we realized we were living in a lovely bubble in hawthorne melbourne where everything mm. was in walking distance and uh, we had just the most uh, rosy uh, wonderfully happy life but the world is bigger than Hawthorne, Melbourne. Now, you were appointed to this position um, representing Victoria in London, which yes. was also the first time a woman had yes. ever held this position. So you were appointed and then decided to make the move? or Well, as a family, we actually had said, uh, wouldn't it be fun to go and have an experience overseas? My husband uh, is an entrepreneur and he has his own he had some flexibility around that and I really like to work so we'd we'd set that train of thought going of course our kids thought it would never happen because it seemed so unreal to them they couldn't uh, imagine it but then what happened again uh, is I was reading the newspaper over an Easter and I would often look at the jobs because uh, it just gives you a sense of what's out there and what sounds interesting and here was an ad for Agent General for Victoria, based in London, working across Europe and, and Israel. And it sounded so interesting. And all of the points of what they were looking for in a person, I didn't match any of them. Uh, but I thought, I'll have a go at that. And so uh, a bit of discussion with my husband because we were thinking of somewhere else, but London's pretty fantastic, and uh, put my hand up for the job. And it was an excruciatingly long, uh, process, uh, but eventually they took a risk. I managed to convince them that even though my skills were quite different to what they thought they wanted, um, that I could I could do a good job of it. And uh, I what got the were role. you sort of? I love that. I absolutely love that story because it sounds like an amazing job as well. But also the fact that you went for it despite the fact that it was not yeah. written to your thing. What were some of the things that you made them realise that they didn't know themselves? Because I believe mm. this role comes from the 1800s or something. It they does, yes. This. Exactly. Yeah. Before Australia was a nation, yes. uh, these roles existed. 
Uh, well, what did I do? Well, firstly, uh, in what going for it, in, yeah, in like so oh, in my skill set that I could take. Correct. So I came uh, from the private sector. I'd never been in a government role before, and what I but I knew that a lot of the role was about economic development. It was about economic opportunities, and even though I, in their minds they thought they were looking for somebody that had a lot of the government policy background that understood economic development from a policy perspective. I went in and said, well, I've got uh, a lot of networks. I know how to build relationships. I understand business cases and panels and balance sheets, all of that economic stuff. Because at the end of the day, a big part of the role was to go into companies and present to them on the opportunity of growing their business into Melbourne, uh, as Melbourne is a footprint for the, this region. And so I said, really, my skills are terrific. I'd just come out of not just venture capital, but banking. So I understood all of the financing side of that. I had networks here I could introduce them to so that they could uh, understand the opportunity at a deeper level. Uh, I, I know that these sorts of transactions and discussions take time. Uh, so I said, we really need to take a relationship lens to this rather than a transactional uh, approach because a lot of the time you walk in and out of markets if there hasn't been a sale you walk away but you can't do that with economic development this is about over time building up our brand and profile uh, around these economic opportunities and I was so excited about that and doing that and of course I as I said I love Melbourne I love Victoria I felt like I was going to be the head of sales for Victoria based in London and that's how I presented it with lots of professional examples um, and, and evidence to back up and at the end of the day it became more about the approach than it was necessarily about me versus somebody else because I was just so different uh, to other candidates that. and I managed to convince the Victorian government that that's how we should be doing it and actually since then they've had more of a business lens to Which the man, role. Just common sense stuff that you felt confident enough yeah. to bring to the position. Well, we're mostly in those roles. It's a, it is a political, it's a, it's, um, it's part of the consular corps as well. So it's got diplomatic elements to it, but the majority of that role is business talking to business. And I think yep. if you've got that business background, it really helps. Yep. And it's such an exciting area to work in as oh, well. It was so good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's just go back for a second to how did you bring your kids around and mm. how long did you end up staying? Mm. Well, uh, they started school and our older boy, who really didn't want to go at all in the end uh, to London, he started to adjust quite quickly because he found a group of friends that he could relate to, sport and all those sorts of things. Uh, he was very tall and he was a big Aussie and, and he ended up in a cohort that thought that was all fabulous. And so he started to uh, get into it. And um, early in the day, early on, we used to do lists at night, I'm a list person, of things that we were enjoying. So just to get all of us to identify things that were new and interesting. But we'd also do a list of the things that were making us sad or frustrated or unhappy so that we could acknowledge those. And at least I could see what they were to see how mm. I could overcome it. What a with William, exercise. yeah, with William, our young boy, he just couldn't find a cohort, and and our, our older boy Nick said he's not even trying, Mum. So uh, and he was desperately unhappy. He would cry every night. It was heartbreaking. So we did a deal. 
with Will and we said, my husband and I, Will, um, we need to know that you're giving this your best to see you know, if it can work out. So let's put a time frame around it. Uh, over the next six weeks, we want to see that you are really involving yourself in lots of things. And if at the end of that six weeks, you are still this miserable, we'll go home. Oh, so he sort of sat up and he said, oh, what does getting involved mean? And we said, well, you've got to get involved in sporting teams or debating teams or you know, some of the activities and we'd just like to see you uh, having a go. At the same time, I called the principal and I said, can you please help us? He's not that good at sport. Can you put him in the B team of something? Can you give him a job? Uh, and so those two things came together and over that six weeks of him actually having a go, his whole world blossomed. And he didn't even ask at the end of the six weeks that we, we'd gone so far beyond it because um, he'd started to make friends, he'd started to feel connected. I mean, so much about life is that sense of connection and feeling purposeful. Um, he had a few extra jobs to do around the classroom and away he went. And the two of them look back now and they realise, you know, they're just citizens of the world. In fact, Will is studying overseas now. Nick's been and worked overseas and he's come back and they have friendship groups and those experiences uh, have really, I think, helped them develop a lot of that resilience and that, that love for life. Says she is the mother, of course, <laughs> I hope that. But they, they're, they're very mature, they cope very well, but they see the world as their stage and I think that's just been wonderful. Fabulous. One of the things I love about that story, and there are many, is that part of the tagline for Lily High on Life is change your attitude, change mm. your life. Mm, well done. But the concept of motivating somebody mm. to change their attitude, I hadn't spent time on before, so mm. thank you. That's a big takeaway for me. Mm. So I have to ask you, how did you meet your husband and how do you, did you know that he was the one you were going to marry? Mm. And well, it's a good question and yesterday was Valentine's Day. We had some friends over for dinner and we all went around the table and talked about how we'd met our partners. And it ended up in a lot of laughs, actually. Um, I, my brother worked in Thailand for a long time and he is married to a Thai uh, person, Yi, who's gorgeous. And my sister worked in London for a long time and she's married to an Englishman, Mark, who's lovely. And I married the boy next door. So we both grew up in Melbourne. We weren't exactly next door to each other. We've known each other since we were about 13 years old. We'd been friends and part of the same friendship group. In fact, my, one of my girlfriends at school was obsessed by Andrew. I used to uh, go on stakeouts with her um, when she'd be spying on him working in the service station on Saturday <laughs> afternoons. All those terrible things you do when you're teenage girls, hiding behind bushes. Uh, and uh, so we'd always known each other. And then we didn't see each other for a while, different universities and things like that. And then uh, our jobs uh, brought us together uh, just by chance. And from there, uh, we just started hanging out again and we've sort of been together ever since. He did ask me out for a drink after that first meeting and it was before mobile phones and I got caught at work and I couldn't get there and he thought that that was incredibly rude. And by the time I had the chance to call him back you know, on the following Monday to tell him why, he said, oh, I said, why don't we go out this week? And he said, no, I'll call you. And he called six months later. And uh, from that next date, we've been together ever since. 
And how long were you together before you got married? We were together for two years. He asked me to marry him on my birthday, the 1st of August, 1995, at my favourite place down at Point Lonsdale under the lighthouse there looking out at the ocean. Aww. It was so romantic. And we decided to elope and we got married exactly uh, on the 1st of September. Uh, so within that month of August, we got ourselves organised. We went to New York and we got married. Shock horror. You have to tell me what the <laughs> elopement was all about. Well, uh, we were planning to get married in all the traditional ways uh, in the, the following sort of March, six months or so, well, nine months later. We started having all the discussions with family and friends and it was very exciting. Uh, but I'm, I'm not a wedding dress, flower girl sort of person. Uh, I said I was a tomboy uh, and I love dressing up but it's just not my thing. And then we were inundated with people in terms of their expectations of the wedding, particularly people who had expectations about being invited and included and what were their roles. And Andrew and I, Andrew's just the kindest person. He was trying to work out how to satisfy everyone. Are you talking about family or family as well and as friends? friends. Yeah. And friends. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and they're all well-intended. There was, yeah, there was yeah. No, nothing like that. But we just looked at each other and thought, no, that's, it won't be special for us. And uh, we had planned a trip. I was going back to America for a school reunion. I did my senior year over there. And uh, we just started a conversation. Well, imagine if we could find a way when we're over there of actually getting married. Were we up for that? And, um, and we worked out in New York. You only had to have a 24-hour licence. In Nevada, it's six minutes. So you know those funny <laughs> wedding chapels. Yes. <laughs> uh, sorts of uh, weddings. Well, that's six minutes. In New York, it's uh, 24 hours. And uh, so, and we weren't going to Nevada, but we were going to New York. And we thought, well, we're there for a couple of days. We can certainly did organise our Did your parents forgive you? <laughs> yes, they did. And, and actually, we had a big party when we came home. And we were quite organised. We'd um, worked out we could do it. So we, as we left Australia, we sent out invitations to everyone saying, Sally and Andrew actually got married in New York on the 1st of September. Come to a party uh, in Love October it. when we got home. So it worked out really well. We Absolutely had a lovely time. Um, your final year of school overseas, was that your idea or your parents? Or Yeah, I uh, had, uh, there was a presentation at school from a girl uh, who actually lives in LA now and uh, Kate Cohen. And she came, she wasn't from our school, but she came to talk about this exchange program called American Field Scholarship. And the stories that she told, she went to South America, were incredible. And just that sense of adventure. And so I applied and you have to go through a process of being interviewed. You have to give a lot of public speeches. So it's like a public speaking oh, competition. Wow. And I asked my mum to sign a form, which she thought was uh, an excursion for public speaking. <laughs> and about six months later, I got through to the end and they offered me uh, the opportunity to go to Midwest America in the mid-80s when we were the flavour of the month, when it was throw another prawn on the barbie by Hoag's. Uh, and I thought it was all going to be grease lightning and, uh, you know, blossoms and rainbows and 
it wasn't all like that. And uh, again, just great learnings about myself and about other people. I'm so close to my American family and my whole family is. We call them mum and dad. And you uh, lived in someone's house. I so. lived in a family's house for 12 months. I re I've got my diary still. I start off saying I'm miserable. I've got 364 days until I can go home because I just thought that they were going to be like me. But yes. they weren't. They're American and they're Midwest Americans and they had very different views and they did different things. And it, it wasn't the expectation I had. But then, as again, as I started to engage and I started at school, uh, by the end of it, I didn't want to go home. Or you have those conflicting feelings. I wanted to see my family in Melbourne, but I didn't want to leave Cincinnati. It was wonderful. Do you remember, and I could talk to you for three hours, we're running out of time, but I think it's really important and I'd love you to focus on what made that transition, what the differences were, because you were always strong-willed, independent, the fact that you even went for it, but then to arrive, and it was obviously a shock to you mm. if you're writing in your diary, mm. and I'm so impressed you've kept a diary, mm. uh, but what was it, what was that transition, what, what got you around, what got you through? Mm. Well, it was a big part of that learning, uh, uh, and there have obviously been a lot of examples of this in my life, of me needing to take responsibility for my own happiness. I couldn't sit there and expect, as it turned out, our, my accent was so strong to them that they, they were nodding their heads, but they couldn't understand a word I was saying uh, for the first <laughs> week or so. I had to slow down and, and help them. Uh, it, I could see the goodwill on my family's behalf and my parents, uh, my mum and dad there are very, very special people like my parents are. And uh, I knew they were really trying their hardest and I questioned myself, am I really trying my hardest? There were other kids trying to get me to go out to movies and things like that. When you feel miserable, you know, the first thing you start to do is close yourself off to those things and go internal. And I had to make a really big effort to put myself out there, even though I was feeling very vulnerable, a long way away. And of course, that's why you do exchanges, to, to test yourself on these things. And uh, so that's what I started to do. I started going to and doing different things that I really didn't want to do, that I was scared, I was feeling intimidated, but I did them and that started to break down some of the walls and uh, eventually I could find my way to uh, feeling happier and finding people I liked and having an understanding and making connections. I remember being at high school sitting like a loser on my own eating my lunch because I didn't know anyone and why would they come and speak to me? I mean they all had their friends and they were doing their things and I could see the popular crowd standing on these stairs, that's where they hung out every lunchtime and I thought Sally if you don't go over and at least have a try of getting to know them, then you are just going to sit here miserable for the whole year eating lunch on your own. So that's what I did. A whole lot of gumption uh, and fear. Walked straight into the middle of that group and just started talking to them. And we all became great friends and the rest is history. So uh, you've really got to get yourself out there. But it's a sense that um, I do feel a lot that I'm the master of my own destiny. And with that comes responsibility. It sounds like a Star Wars movie. No, but it's wonderful for people to hear because everybody has insecurities mm. and you make up all kinds of rubbish exactly. about stuff in your head. But when you actually go and involve yourself with people, you find out mm. it's, you know, fake it till you make it a little exactly. bit. But 
But what have you got to lose as well? There are so many circumstances where we think of all of the terrible things that can happen, but Mm. really, you know, you're still you, people still... And also back in those days, I think a phone call to Australia must have been like $100 a minute or something. We didn't do it. It was letters. So you were writing letters. You didn't have that immediate contact with the people you loved. Yeah, I felt very alone for, for a little while there until uh until you know i could make the connections that i needed to and one of my most vivid memories is of my dad uh coming down the stairs in his wife front undies to yell at me at two in the morning because i'd miss my curfew and i just started laughing because i realized at that point i really was part of the family <laughs> uh, and he was yelling at me just the same as he would any of uh, my sister or brother over there and and he really cared about me and i i just loved it yeah and it's that really positive attitude to life generally that sort of brought you along so and i also believe that when you're going through things where you are a bit sad or you are not quite well even depressed Mm. that's when you formulate what you really do want in your life even more than than when everything's going well it's great to come up with more and more ideas that are make going to make you happier and happier but to define what you really want comes from those those moments it really does and i'm a firm believer that you don't have rainbows without rain I take all of those experiences and I appreciate them. They, they'll teach me something about myself or about other people or about circumstances. And uh, I, I, I keep taking that learning. But we have, all of us go through desperately sad times or desperately insecure times. And the way that we respond to those is really what counts. And I've seen this in this role as well. There have been some terribly tragic events that have happened since I've been Lord Mayor. And it's the way we've responded as a city and as a community that really has counted the most, not the fact that it happened in the first place. So we can find ourselves in the depths, uh, but we know, hopefully, we find inner fortitude, but we also know in reaching out that there will be people to help us if we have the courage to reach out. And sometimes that's that's one of the barriers. Yeah. And what are the qualities that you like the most about each of your sons and your husband? Oh, uh, my husband is the kindest person I have ever met. And I think kindness and people being kind to each other, we've started to overlook the importance of that. And his, his, his kindness is really something incredibly amazing. And as part of that kindness, he is so funny. His kindness is to make people laugh and to make them happy. And I just feel so lucky about that. Uh, my uh, oldest son, Nicholas, or our oldest son, Nicholas, is a real people person. He has the most incredible interest in people, which is genuine. And he then sets himself up for the most incredible conversations and experiences because he's really happy just to sit and talk and listen uh, to people. Love so that. that's just lovely. And our younger son, William, uh, has an inbuilt sense of fairness and equity that drives him in everything he does. He's very into social causes. He's very aware and he is so uh, 
aware of people who might be struggling or circumstances where there isn't fairness and he really rails against that and rallies and he acts mm. and uh, to have that inbuilt sort of moral compass where that sense of equity is so ingrained is a real driver for him and, and we're very proud of him. Sounds wonderful. Both of them sound like amazing human beings. I shouldn't even ask you this because of time, but I have to know, um, when you have downtime, what do you do for yourself that makes you personally feel good that you make time for, for mm. you? Mm. That's a very good question. Uh, what do I make time for? I, uh, I really, well, I'm a reader. Uh, so I'm a big reader. Look, my bedside table is covered in books. And if I can just find 10 minutes to read something, anything, uh, then I find that really re rejuvenates and, and um, makes me very happy. And I famously once read a Yellow Pages uh, in a hotel in Fiji because nothing else was available. Oh my God. Just to, it, it sort of disconnects me and brings me back and I find that I'm really energised. So you're yeah. definitely not a Netflix kind of gal because no. that eats up time like anything. Yeah. Um, massages? No. No, no, not the... No. Fabulous. Thank you so much. I really am sorry we don't have another two hours. This has been absolutely delightful and I really appreciate um, your candour. Lily, it's been lovely to be with you today and thanks for your interest. My pleasure.